This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It's a horrible smell, the smell of gunfire and blood. All at the same time, everything was there. It smelled like a battlefield, really. We started uh, moving towards the place where all, all the bodies were and it started taking them apart. We pulled the women out of the way. The, they were, uh, the women were still handcuffed handcuffed to the uh, to the hostage takers. We had to undo the cuffs, remove the, the, the bodies, you know, separate them, take them out of there, get the women off, you know, covered up and whatever, and move them out. This is Ben Aguilar. Ben was right there for the entire 1974 Huntsville prison siege, one of the worst hostage crises in American history. They just, it was just out of pure hatred and anger and rage. We're just going to kill, kill everybody that we, ha- we can, and you can't take it. We'll just, we'll just fight you to the death. It's a standoff. Ben Aguilar is retired now. He was born during the Great Depression in 1938 on a small farm in the countryside about 50 miles west of the Walls Unit in Huntsville, the oldest prison in Texas. When Ben was only three years old, tragedy struck his family. My father had died while we were still children. He was a sharecropper, and he he passed away, you know. All that hard work killed him out there. Anyway, so my mother was left with a bunch of kids and. uh, there was not a man in the house to do the, the the crops, stuff like that. So my grandmother and my, my aunt, they brought us here to Huntsville. Huntsville suited Ben just fine. In spite of the early loss of his father, he had a good childhood. It was in a small town, uh, typical small Texas town. Uh, people were nice, people were friendly. I made a lot of friends. Uh, we sneak off and go fishing these creeks around the local creeks, uh, played out in the ball fields in town and in and, and, and other people's yards and stuff like that. Just a bunch of kids growing up together. My grandmother took in boarders, and my mother did house cleaning, so that, that's the way they, they supported us. My grandmother was, was a, a lady from Mexico. She'd been born and raised in Mexico and in, 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 dire, in dire poverty over there, but she, she knew how to make a, she knew how to make a living. We lived in, in an area that was just a few few blocks down from the prison. Each time we went to school or, or, or came back home from school, we walk, always walked in front of the walls. It never occurred to me that I would be, that I would, that I would, that I would work as a, as a correctional officer there. And yet, that's exactly what Ben did. After college, he got a job at the Walls Unit, right up the street from his childhood home. Lots of inmates at the Walls Unit spoke Spanish. Because Ben was bilingual and he knew how to type, the warden put him in charge of interviewing the inmates when they arrived at prison. We'd find out their education, their abilities, what their trades, the things that they did. And then they would assign uh, each inmate according to what they knew, what they could do, the race, their religious preferences and all that stuff. When the one o'clock whistle blew at the Walls Unit on July 24th, 1974, and Federico Gomez Carrasco and his Confederates lay siege to the prison library, Ben Aguilar had no clue. He was eating lunch. One, one of the lieutenants or somebody, he said, hey, uh, Hey, Ben, we need you over here. Uh, he, uh, Warden wants to talk to you about something. He, he needs you. We got a problem here. We need we need to go over there. And and it was Mr. Estelle. The director was there. He said, uh, Ben, are, how proficient are you in, you know, at, at, uh, Spanish? I said, well, I speak it pretty well, dear, you know, sir. I'm bilingual. He says, well, we've got this inmate that's... Uh, uh, he's taking hostages over in the, in the library, and he doesn't want to talk to us in English. He wants he wants somebody to talk to in Spanish. And so he says, uh, "You're elected." So I said, "Okay." So I, I got to talking with uh, 
Carrasco almost immediately. I thought maybe this would probably be an easy thing. Maybe I can, maybe I can talk him out of it, you know. Take talk and, and I wanted to know what he what, what the problem was, and he started telling me all his grievances about being mistreated and things like that. And I said, well, you know, we can we can we can change your situation. We can. Uh, as a matter of fact, I work in the classification department. We can find you an, another place to where you can you know make you know uh, live your life a little bit better or you know different or whatever. He said no. He said, I want to get out of here. I've got some weapons here, and I've got, I've got these hostages here. I'm going to start killing them if y'all don't start, you know, complying with my, uh, you know, my uh, requests and things like that, well, whatever. So I turned to Mr. Estelle. That's Jim Estelle, the prison system director. I told him what was going on. He said, well, we'll just have to take it, you know, as, as little, little, little at a time. So he did speak some English. So he said, "Let me talk. Let me talk to that damn director. Let me tell him what I what what I really want." No, I knew he was serious. I, I could tell by the tone of his voice. I just I just had that feeling that he was very serious about it. The way he went about taking hostages and we found out he had guns up there and stuff like that. You know, and, and when once we realized, once we saw that, we knew, I knew then that it was pretty serious. We were gonna have to deal with it. You know. Pretty, pretty seriously. We had Texas Rangers in there, and we had a couple of sheriff's deputies from the local sheriff's office, other uh, officers that were working back and forth. It, it was, it was, it was quite a crowd in there. I was on duty around the clock. We tried to write down everything they were saying that we could that we could hear, trying to devise a somewhat of a, a plan on how to get at them. I guess you might say. So we were we were instructed to to write down everything that we could hear. We could. Then we'd give it over to to Mr. Estelle, the director, and all the Texas Rangers. They would all look at it and set up a, set up their strategy in one way or the other. From information that we got from them, they were able to figure out just in what spots they were in up there in that library by the conversations that were going on about the things that we heard in the background. You know, the women talking back there in the background. Fred Carrasco and his henchmen, Rudy Dominguez and Ignacio Cuevas got through the first long night of their siege, although every little noise sent them into a rage. The library was on the third and top floor of the education building. The prison kitchen was on the first floor. At four o'clock in the morning, before the sun had even risen, the kitchen staff went to work, fixing breakfast for all the inmates, just like they always did. They were noisy. Carrasco freaked out directing most of his anger at hostage Bobby Hurd, the only prison guard in the library. Meanwhile, Rudy Dominguez was waving his gun around like a madman. We um, were put in a semicircle numerous times during the day and told we were going to be shot if TDC didn't do whatever they were asking them to do within a certain period of time. This is Linda Woodman in an interview with William T. Harper for his book, 11 Days in Hell. Linda was a librarian, age 44, when she was taken hostage. Carrasco had stated that um, Mr. Hurd was going to be the first one killed. And um, then he was getting us in this semicircle. And he told me to go over and stand beside a, a railing. And I smarted off, I guess. And as I say? was going to him, I said, does this mean I'm the first one to be killed? And he said, no, this is William, you'll be the second one. Well, that was a little scary. Anyway, I, <clears throat> I stood there and he's, you know, telling everybody in the semicircle what to do and to um, they were all supposed to be making noises like uh, please don't kill us but you know so that they would be heard on the telephone hostage novella pollard the assistant principal of the prison school was on the phone with prison warden hal husbands when the hostages were ordered to scream please don't kill us in the background carrasco knew he was backed into a corner 
In the chess match that was beginning to unfold between the outlaw and the Texas prison system, Carrasco was looking for any advantage he could find, no matter how small. He was also a master of emotional manipulation. Carrasco was a murderer many times over. He made no apologies for the lives he took. He reckoned the prison officials were softer. Maybe they'd be swayed by the screams and tears of innocent women, teachers, librarians, moms, and grandmas. Linda Woodman was cooler and more collected than the others. At that moment, as the others screamed and wailed, she decided to accept death. There's a railing between the entranceway and in, down into the library. And so I'm standing there and I'm thinking, well, it, it really looks serious. And I thought, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to, to stand here and watch him kill me. And I turned my back to the whole group and I'm, I'm just standing there thinking, okay, he's going to shoot. It's going to go through my back and that's going to smart a lot and I'm going to fall over this rail. I'm just standing right there and I'm thinking, okay, that going to knock me over here, and I'm going to look so disgusting, unladylike. You know, I could just see me, of course I had on a pantsuit, but I could just see my legs sprawled out, and how embarrassing, you know, to have to fall and be in a situation like that. And about the time all this is going through my mind, he has put... Um, uh, Dominguez is standing in front of Mr. Uh, Robinson and he has him in a closet and he's standing there pointing his gun at him and all of a sudden he shoots that gun. All of a sudden he shoots that gun. My God, they shot Mr. Robinson. I thought, my God, I just saw a man killed. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Standoff. They got me chained in leg iron. I guess they got a good excuse. They know I'm gonna run the first chance I get. Cause they never gonna cut me loose. And I don't care if they shoot me. Down, I'll never be free again I've got two long life terms to do Both running into end Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. This is Chapter 5. I just saw a man killed. On the second morning of the 1974 Huntsville prison siege, Fred Carrasco was feeling the heat. He kept hearing strange noises from the kitchen two floors below. Carrasco was convinced that prison guards were tunneling up to the library. They were going to slaughter him and his henchmen to save the captives in distress. Here's hostage Aileen House. Rudy was standing just over behind my shoulder here. and. Fred was talking, and they thought these holes where the uh, pipes came up through the floor, well, they could see a, just a little ray of light that was escaping from downstairs, and all the trays were being rattled, and, and they just went crazy. They were mad. And, well, TDC's there making a hole there to come through. I said, Fred, there's no way. I said, they'd have to have steam hammers or drills or whatever. They can't come through that floor without you knowing it. And uh, he said, yes, they're making a hole. And Quavis got down and put his ear on the floor. Yeah, yeah, you know, they're coming. I hear them. 
And we said, that's their feeding inmates. You're hearing the trays rattle. No, no. Aileen was right. That tunneling Fred Carrasco heard really was just kitchen sounds like the dishwashers running. Carrasco didn't like that either. So he put in the call to the warden's office and told him, you know, that if they didn't get them out, well, that's when it was all going to end right there. And they had this idea of Cravus. He was, I called him the mad dog and rooted the rattlesnake because that's the way they were, just strike at anything. And they took Ron Robinson and he was handcuffed and his, his feet were taped. And Ron Robinson was yet another hostage not to be confused with Steve Robertson, the inmate taken hostage. Robinson and Robertson, got it? Ronald Wayne Robinson, 35 years old, was a teacher at the Walls Unit. He was married and had a couple of kids. On the first night of the siege, in fact, his daughter Cheryl was supposed to have a birthday party. Along with being a prison teacher and family man, Ron was a PhD student at Sam Houston State. As you probably know, I am a, I've completed two years of doctoral study in criminal justice and I intend to do a paper, a doctoral dissertation on this particular experience. With their pistols cocked, Fred Carrasco's two sidekicks ordered Ron into a closet, down on his knees, where the noises were coming from. And they set him right in the door of this little uh, closet where the fuse boxes and these pipes were. And he told the warden that uh, uh, his, his man, Ron Robinson, was sitting over the place where the hole was coming through. And uh, if there was another sound from down there, well, he'd had it. And uh, Rudy, uh, even though Fred controlled him at most times, well, on his own, he just fired this shot. And I didn't see him fire the shot, but uh, some of the others did, and they said he just slightly pulled it to the left, just went right by Ron's shoulder. It hit the fuse box, is what it hit. Well, I saw Ron, and he fell back into the closet, and I could only see him from the waist down then. And his, you know, his knees began to twitch, and his feet twitched a few times, and then he was just still. I thought, my God, I just saw a man killed. And, uh, of course... I'm not a hysterical type. I never did scream and cry or anything like that. And I, I've always been so that I could, whatever I had to go through, I went through. And then if there's anything going to happen, I'd collapse. <laughs> and uh, so in a few seconds, Rudy walked over and he kicked him on the foot. And Ron didn't move a hair. So he kicked him again. And he says, Robinson, get up. You're not hurt. And he said it the second time, and Ron began to move. His feet began to move. I thought, oh, thank God he's not dead anyway. So he raised up, and if you've ever seen anyone take a dive into a pool and come up with the water streaming, that was his condition. And as he sat up, he took his hand up like this, and he rubbed it across, and he looked at it. And he says, it's not blood. And he said he knew he wasn't dead, but he was afraid to move. But he thought he had been grazed and that all this moisture he felt was blood. And so from that moment on, Ron Robinson was, uh, well, he was just a broken man, that's all. Rudy screwed up when he fired that gun. The thing that worried Fred tremendously, Ms. Pollard was on the phone talking to Warden Husbands when that happened. And she was giving him Fred's instructions as to what was going to happen to Robinson if they didn't get this noise out from underneath. And she says, my God, they've shot Mr. Robinson. The warden repeated the statement to someone who was in his office. And Ms. Pollard heard somebody make a reply. She couldn't tell what. So... Uh, Fred knew that all this had taken place, yet nobody said anything. Nobody asked, how is Mr. Robinson? You know, do you need some first aid? Do you need a stretcher? Is he dead? And it just nearly drove him up the wall that no one asked anything about him. The bullet actually missed Robinson by about nine inches. 
the dampness he felt wasn't blood. It was sweat. None of this was part of Carrasco's plan. But he was thinking fast. He grabbed the phone from Novella Pollard and barked that if the noises from the kitchen didn't stop, Carrasco would start shooting more hostages. Warden Husbands ordered all the cooking and dishwashers to stop immediately. Some of Husbands' colleagues were ready to order the invasion right then, come hell or high water. But Estelle, ever a patient man, ordered them to hold off. He sensed Carrasco was bluffing. Calling from the prison warden's office, lawyer Ruben Montemayor tried to walk his client down from the ledge. Okay, let me tell you something that's happening now, Fred. Uh-huh. Because of the noise, you remember the noise that you heard? You right. thought that they were drilling. Those were the dishwashers. Uh-huh. And the mess hall has been completely evacuated, and they're not fixing any food for anybody. And they're feeding him sandwiches, you know? Ruben had more important news for Carrasco. He'd heard from Rosa, Carrasco's wife. When I talked to her yesterday, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, you know, she called me crying and all this, and I wanted to, to, to bring her over, but uh, the, uh, she decided to, to wait. See. But now, I haven't, they haven't heard at the office room. Mm. So I don't know where she is or anything. If you could... If you want to locate or something up, we'll do everything in our part to do. Mm-hmm. Remember, Rosa is the love of Carrasco's life. She's the reason he pleaded guilty and took the life sentence in the first place, to keep the mother of his children out of prison. And Rosa was about to disappear. It would become a huge mystery. There were even rumors that she was driving to Huntsville to break him out herself. In fact, Rosa took her three kids and fled to Mexico where she had already arranged to meet her husband after his escape. Meanwhile, the prison warden had 110 armed guards standing ready to infiltrate the library and take out Carrasco. There were sharpshooters strategically positioned on nearby roofs. The warden also got hold of the building plans, looking for any vulnerabilities in the library. And they kept stalling. Hang up the phone and then call me back on zero. Okay. Operator? Yes. Okay, is this Carrasco? Correct. Okay. Hello? Hello. Get that in that Fred, okay, he's on. Okay. Okay, Fred. Just hold on for the governor. Carrasco was getting impatient. He wanted things to happen right now. So he got his lawyer to arrange a phone call with the governor of Texas, Dolph Briscoe. But Governor Briscoe had been alerted to prison director Jim Estelle's tactic. Stall, stall, stall. They're trying to get him. Hello. Should I put the governor on now? Yes. All right, hold on. Okay. Hello. Yes, governor. This is uh, Ruben Montemayor. I'm attorney for Fred Carrasco. Yes, sir. How are you, governor? Well, fine. How was your trip? Huh. Governor? I just got here. Y- yes? Where are you? I am at the airport in Austin. Okay, well, you know the urgency of this matter, and uh, I guess Mr. Estelle has already discussed that with you. Governor, I'd like to uh, I'd like to go ahead and put uh, Fred Carrasco, he's listening on the on this conference call, and uh, he would like to uh, he would like to talk to you. Okay, Fred? Okay, uh, first, first, Governor, I'm going to go ahead and translate everything he tells me. Okay, go ahead, Fred. Mire, licenciado, quiero que le diga al señor gobernador. I want uh, for you as my lawyer to tell the governor que, no, que nosotros no queremos de ninguna manera la vida a esta gente que tenemos de regenes. That we do not want to eliminate the lives of these people that we have as hostages. Pero, but, si acaso no nos da lo que demandamos, if we don't get what we demand, pues entonces nos obliga, in that case, you obligate us a ponerlos o pasarlos por las armas. To pass them through the fire. 
Así es de que esperamos a ver qué, qué es la decisión de ahorita. En este momento, at this moment, está un individuo there is an individual con la está un individuo apuntándole la pistola there is an individual pointing a pistol a dos individuos at two people así es de que queremos saber cuál es la decisión and this is the reason we want to know what your decision is anything else Fred? por este momento espero la decisión and this, uh, at this moment I await your decision Can you wait, Governor? Can you hear him, friend? Bueno, can you hear him? Ahorita, ¿qué fue lo que dijo? See if you can talk a little louder. Hello. Yes, sir. I have just arrived here. Please, have a Okay, Fred, just a minute. Fred, sí. the Governor says that he has just arrived uh -huh. in, uh, in Austin. He doesn't know about the situation, what's going on. He just got there. He's at the airport. Please, please help okay? Now, let's see what else he says. I will review the situation with my staff. Go ahead. As, as, as soon as I get them together. And uh, cuando los junte, Fred. ¿Cuánto tiempo le agarra? What, uh, he wants to know how much time that will take. It will take about uh, an hour and a half. Carrasco didn't want to wait that long. He passed the phone to a string of hostages who'd been ordered to beg for their lives, with instructions to really let their emotions fly. What you are about to hear is even more remarkable audio from the phone calls recorded by the prison system. These are real hostages trapped inside the prison library, captive to ruthless and desperate men. Governor, if you've ever done anything, please do it now. These men have been nice to us, but they, all they want is to get out of the country. And I don't think there'll be any bother to us. Please, Governor. Are you there? Yes, he's listening. Please. We all have children. Please, We're just God. teachers. Please. There, and there are, are 11 of us all together, and they want to talk to you. Will you listen? I certainly will. Thank you. Please, yes. Governor Briscoe, please. We're only human beings. Can't you help? It's an extremely critical one. You have to act immediately. We only have a few minutes to live, and they should have informed you. We're just teachers, and, and we have children at home, and they're fixing to kill everybody. Please help us. Give them what they want, please. We'll do our very best right away. Please tell Fred that you will right away. Okay? We will do our very best. Those were hostages Vaughn Besseda and Judy Stanley. Next came Linda Woodman. Governor, I tried to call you last night, and I got an aide or something, and, and we couldn't get through to you. But this is the most serious thing that's ever happened, ever, ever. They are about to kill every one of us. And this, you, you just don't know. The minute, if you don't do this, they're going to shoot every one of us. Right. Well, we don't either, but you're about to see 11 people hurt seriously, fatally. The phone was handed to Bert Davis, who had a shocking update for Governor Briscoe. But you've got to tell him this minute he is going to kill the, the officer. Please, 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 Governor, right this minute, tell him. Tell, oh, well, he's, he's on another line. Governor, we got to put you on hold. They've got some officers in the building and they're fixing to shoot us. Would you hold? Would you hold? Governor? Yes, yes. Would you hold? Please, they're fixing to shoot if they don't get these officers out of the building. Oh. Please. Oh, my God. Uh, let me talk to Fred. Ruben consulted with Carrasco in Spanish. Oh, yeah. the church and they're trying to jump inside. Okay, I just told the word on that, Fred. 
Was this it? The beginning of the end? Were armed guards set to invade the library? Yep. They were armed and ready. Planning to end the siege, prison director Estelle ordered his men to line the roof along the back wall with plastic explosives and sandbags. In the instant the explosives detonated, blowing away the wall, some members of the prison's assault team would be lifted by forklift to the third floor where the library was, and others would climb ladders. Once they reached the third floor, they would crawl through the hole in the wall and, if all went according to plan, take out the bad guys and save as many hostages as they could. The prison had also built metal shields so heavy they were on wheels and required two guards to operate. One officer would push the shield forward while the other had a weapon drawn. But Carrasco knew none of this. He just had a hunch based on the noises he'd heard. Carrasco escalated his war of manipulation. Putting the prison guard turned hostage, Bobby Heard, on the phone with Governor Dolph Briscoe. With Fred listening nearby, Bobby begged for his life. Who is this, Governor? Yeah. Governor, this is Heard up here in the education department. Look, they're fixing to shoot us. I mean, they're through. I mean, I don't know. And it's up to you. And these people are fixing to come in, it looks like, or at least they think they are. I hope they're not. No, no, there's no way that they're going okay. to go in there. Okay, Don't worry about that. No. Okay. He, the, the, these people are keeping their promise. Okay. Now, look, he's fixing to shoot me. You know, I'm fixing to die if you don't do something right now. And the rest of us in there are going to die, too. These people don't have anything to lose, and they're serious. And all they want to do is get out of the country. And that, that's not too big a price to pay for 11 lives. Now, is it? Okay. Governor, yeah. are you listening? Yeah. Okay. Now, I wish you could have got us out earlier. All you got to do is tell these people to let us out the front door. That's all you got to do, and get us on a plane, and we'll go with them. Just leave us alone let us get out of the country. That's all they want. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. What are you going to do about it? I understand. I'll talk to Mr. Carrasco right now. If Mr. Estelle really intended to send in the armed guards at that moment, smashing into the library, he was calling them off. For now, the deadly confrontation would have to wait. In the meantime... You think, uh, I always thought negotiations is one-on-one or something like that. You give it this and I'll give it that. Well, it got to be a game, for Christ's sake, at least on the law enforcement side. That's William T. Harper, author of the 2005 book, 11 Days in Hell, the 1974 Carrasco prison siege at Huntsville, Texas. Wanting to change out of his prison whites, Carrasco ordered the negotiators to send him a specific brand of shoes, none bush, and expensive suits from a Texas tailor. But prison director Jim Estelle had another trick up his sleeve. Carrasco's friend said, I need suits. All right, what size do you want? Oh, 32. Okay, so they send him 38. Oh, no, no. Carrasco got his fancy clothing just like he wanted but the suits were comically oversized. Sending them back to get the correct size bought more time. And for director Estelle, buying time was the name of the game. I learned about the negotiations of the negotiations. Stall, talk, keep talking. That's what you got to do. At least that's what I learned. I thought, and that's what they were doing. And whatever he asked for, they gave him, but not what he wanted. And if he wanted coffee, they sent him tea. It was that kind of thing. It was just on and on and on. But it was, it was a, a, a game of negotiations, at least in the, under horrible circumstances. Uh, looking back, you know, at the time, they sure as hell weren't playing games. But they were trying to stall. And that's the thing with stalling in, in the negotiation situation. That they had. Stall. Keep talking. Whatever you do, stall. And as long as we're talking... Nothing's happening. And maybe something will happen during this course of whatever we're talking about that will give us a clue or give us an opening or who knows what. You just want to get tired of talking and say, how the hell did I quit? Come get me. That was the attitude and that was the negotiations strategy. But no matter what Bill Harper, Governor Briscoe, or any of the hostages thought, the negotiation could not go on forever.
The Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville is under siege tonight for the second straight night. Inside, convicts with guns are holding hostages, some of whom are women. Several times today, the convicts threatened to shoot the hostages, but prison authorities kept bargaining for extra time. How, how about that, Fred? Can you give him about an hour, at least an hour and a half? Mira, it means a lot. This was just the latest in a series of violent run-ins between Fred Carrasco and lawmen. One year ago, Carrasco was captured following a shootout with San Antonio police. Now, Fred Carrasco wants out. Carrasco decided to make another move, a move to show that he was not playing around. He wanted weapons and protection. Things were getting deadly serious. His lawyer shared the demands with the governor. Okay, number one, governor, he wants, he wants everybody around the building out. That's number one. They don't want him on the roofs. Fred had been getting stacks of newspapers sent to the library, and he devoured the news reports about his siege, stroking his ego and looking for clues. So Carrasco knew that he was surrounded. That added pressure would be felt by Fred, but also by his lawyer. Knowing this, Ruben Montemayor knew he had to cool his client down. Okay, Fred. That's the important thing, the lives of those people. Those people are trying their best to save their lives, Fred. Okay. Now, now those people that, that they, you were talking about, they, they're gone now. They're not there. We didn't know about this. All of them. Exactly the way you requested it, Fred. All of them. Got the governor to talk to you like you requested. And the, and the warden says he keeps his word. The director, Mr. Estelle, keeps the word not to attack you. Mm. and uh, in return for you not to hurt the people. Okay. Oh, friend, reassure those poor women, will you? With the crisis averted, no paratroopers swarming the library, Fred Carrasco began to settle in. Librarian Linda Woodman was cooler and calmer than most of the other hostages. She became his secretary, making calls and taking notes. The prison also agreed to send up meals to the library. Carrasco was careful, he named Father Joseph O'Brien, the Catholic priest and prison chaplain, as his taste tester, just in case the food was poisoned. Carrasco also let the hostages call their loved ones. One of the first on the phone was our old buddy Steve Robertson, the inmate who'd volunteered to stay and become a hostage. Steve called his ex, Cameron, the mother of his child, at her job in an air traffic control tower in Dallas. Steve's love for Cameron was still burning strong. And Steve had something to say to her. What better time than while being held a prison hostage? I'd like to speak to Mrs. Cameron Akins, please. Cameron. Akins. Menard now, just a moment. I'm transferring to her extension. Hello. Hello, Cameron. Hello. Cameron. This is Steven. What are you doing? I'm oh, dead in the middle of it. I'm, I'm shaking. Trick the paper. I'm shaking. I, wait, don't hold on. I ain't got no damn time yeah. to hold on. What? What's the deal? I mean, are you in here? I got caught in the cross, man. I, there's some good dudes. I'll come up. <laughs> I sympathize with them. Uh, I wouldn't in on it, but I'm helping them, you know. Uh, I didn't have no choice, you know. You don't sound sorry. I'll tell you something. I want you to listen to me. I know you're married. Huh? I know you're married. I want you to listen to me. I'm gonna get you back when I get out. What? I'm gonna get you back. What? I'm gonna get you back. Yes, you really heard Steve Robertson at the very moment he is being held captive in the Huntsville Prison Library, promising to win back the woman he'd already lost to another man. Steve was serving hard time. He had more than a decade to go on his sentence. Although he wasn't involved in the conspiracy to take over the Walls Unit Library, it sounded like Steve was hoping Carrasco would spring him from prison, too. Steve told Cameron to call his mom. He wanted her to hire a lawyer. Freedom was calling. If Steve played his cards right, he'd wind up back in Cameron's arms soon enough. There was just one problem. Cameron was having none of it. I want you to listen to me carefully now. I wrote you a letter and told you everything she went down to stand. My name is to worry and cry when you were solitary. And you told me when you went down there. I'm coming home. I'm going to be good. You yeah. can't go about things that way. 
shut down that way. You listen to me. Stephen, you stop and think. You're going to be locked up for a long time. You're going to you know? be there when I get out? What? You're going to be there when I get out? I want you to listen to me, Stephen. I'll ask my question. Anything in the world. You stop and think about that son of yours. How? Cameron. Listen. Cameron. Listen, let me say this one thing. That baby does not know what a boy he is. He's like with his father. He has had no baby to teach him how to play, you know, to go fishing and anything. Because his daddy's fighting for his life. Steve cut off Cameron when she was trying to talk some sense into him. He had another question for her. The conversation took a bizarre turn. Steve decided to put his own captor, Rudy Dominguez, the gun-waving madman, on the phone with the mother of his son. Hello? Hello? Who is it? Hello? You know, this, this, this guy here, he don't have nothing to do with us. He just got caught when we took over the library. I'm worried, man. You know, I'm worried about, about every one of you down there. I mean, I really am. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, ridiculous for me to press on you. What? I mean, but if something goes wrong, do you know? I mean, do you realize what's going to happen to you? Yeah, we know. We, we decided it when, it when we started it. Will you be careful? Yes, ma'am. Really? Are you scared? Nope. If we were scared, we, we wouldn't have started this. What do you want from them? I mean, what, what do you want them to let you do? Oh, we, 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 they know what we want. Yeah. We, we have the nerve, we have the guts, and we have the nerve to kill two. We have the nerve, we have the guns, and we have the nerve to kill two. Do you really, do you really think that this is all? Well, it, it's up to them. It's their decision. Not ours. We're just waiting. And we ain't going to wait too long. Okay. Say, Carmen, can you blame me now? It's not that I didn't believe you. Oh, listen. I listen, honey. Listen, honey. I'm in it now. I can't help it. Yes, you can. Well, listen to me. Do you I believe what you're doing, Stephen? I don't believe in it. Hell no, I don't believe it. What are you doing? I can't get out the door. That's why it's simple as that, Carmen. I can't get out the damn door. It's as simple as that. Well, of course I volunteered. He's a friend of mine. He asked me to stay. I stayed. A friend of yours? Yeah, he's a friend of mine. Well, listen, Cameron, listen. I gotta go. It was time for another phone call. A conversation between a ruthless killer and hostage taker, his lawyer, and the governor of Texas. These three men were negotiating the lives of innocent strangers, and the outcome was nowhere near certain. And Carrasco had a new round of demands. Fred, is the, they're, they're getting the, the conference call ready mm-hmm. to talk to the governor again. Uh-huh. Okay? Okay. Okay, now, you do exactly what I told you, Fred. The operator will call, will call you. 
Yeah, I'll hang up and then uh, I'll dial operator. Dial zero, yes. Okay. Uh, Hello. Hello, Governor? Yes. Uh, he's on, Governor. All right. And uh, I'll go ahead and translate li like I did before. All right, fine. Okay, Fred. Pues, ¿Qué le quieres preguntar? Pues usted me le dice, señor gobernador, que cuál es su decisión. He wants to know what your decision is, and let me ask him, uh, uh, let me ask him a question. Okay. Uh, ¿A cuál de ellas, Freddy? La decisión de las uh, demandas, o porque le dijimos varias cosas, si te acuerdas. Pues, sí, we'll sí. take one at a time. Pues queremos a las demandas. Okay. Now, let me ask Governor, huh? he wants to know what your decision is on, on their demands. Mr. Montemayor, I'm not familiar with, I have not been told what all the demands are. Okay, have you been told, uh, uh, have they contacted you from here concerning the demands? I have talked with them, I have not been told what all of the, what all of the demands are, no. Queremos, uh, first of all, we want ten, uh, tres, uh, cascos, three helmets, a prueba de bala. Uh, bulletproof. He also asked for six bulletproof vests and three M16s with five clips and 100 rounds for each rifle, plus shoes, shirts, and three suits. What else, Fred? I want to know, uh, Governor, what your decision is going to be, to be so that the people can relax. Mientras que consigue esto, Fred. Correcto. While you... Uh, Whatever you have to do, uh, he says that uh, that uh, he wants a decision from you. Hello? Bueno. Hello? Bueno. Okay, we were cut off, Fred. ¿Qué pasó? Wait, let's wait a little while. Andela. Somebody cut us off. This conference calls are very complicated. Uh-huh. Hello? You hear anything? Tampoco. Uh, you want to stay on, Fred? Let me check it out. Andele. Hello? Bueno. Wait, wait. Hello? Hello, is this Wyndham School District? School District? No, ma'am, you got the wrong number. Is, is this uh, 295-6371? No, this is 295, yeah, 6371. Okay. But this is not the district. Okay, thank you. They, they're checking on it. More technical difficulties or more delay tactics? A little of both. The stalling tactics and misdirections seemed to be working, buying time, but Director Estelle was walking a fine line. He didn't want to push Fred over the edge, and he didn't doubt Fred's promise to kill the hostages if his demands weren't met. Huh, okay. They're getting the conference uh, started again, Fred. Can you just wait? If the operator calls you, go ahead and dial zero like we did before. Oh, well. I'm going to be right here. Okay. Hello? Call me back on Cigar. Governor okay. Briscoe was long gone. He'd already decided not to get involved in stopping the prison break attempt. Governor Briscoe was leaving things up to the prison officials, particularly Jim Estelle, the director of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And Estelle knew that Carrasco meant business. We are making these demands with determination that if they are not met, we'll be obligated to put all the hostages except the inmates to death. You're listening to a prison spokesman reading Carrasco's statement for the news cameras. We will not commit such an atrocity unless we are provoked or that our demands are not met. As negotiations with the convicts continued, guards began bringing in extra arms and tear gas, saying they hoped the weapons wouldn't be needed. Carrasco, meanwhile, has been quoted as saying he would rather die than spend a dog's life in prison. For Ben Aguilar, the prison translator, and everyone on all sides of the siege, the worst was yet to come. Somebody's going to get killed. We, we, we knew they had weapons up there, powerful weapons. But we also had weapons, too, ready, ready to use. Yeah, I was worried about the hostages, and I, I feared for my life. Coming up later this season on Standoff. It was just out of 
pure hatred and anger and rage that we're just going to kill kill everybody that we can, we can and you can't take it. We'll just we'll just fight you to the death. It's a standoff. Standoff is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer and story editor is Jason Hoke. Audio editing and sound engineering by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score for Standoff by Max Baca, with additional music from Flaco Jimenez on accordion. Music engineering by Tony Gonzalez. Our main theme, Huntsful, is performed by Ray Benson and was originally released on the Merle Haggard and the Strangers 1971 album, Someday We'll Look Back. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Carrasco audio tapes from the Texas Department of Corrections, courtesy of the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Special thanks to the staff of the Texas Prison Museum for their generous help with research materials. The Corridos, La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Nuevo Corrido de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Corrido de Rosa Carrasco, and El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco are published by San Antonio Music Publishers Incorporated and are courtesy of DLB Records. Special thanks to Eastside Music Studios in Austin, Texas. Have questions? Contact us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. San Antonio writer Greg Barrios passed away during the production of this podcast, as did William T. Harper, author of 11 Days in Hell. I hope this show honors their memory. Que lejos estoy del suelo donde nací Inmensa nostalgia invade mi pensamiento Y al verme tan solo y triste o aloja el viento Quisiera llorar, quisiera morir The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.